eight, and if, as you can probably guess, we have some wonderful, very talented helpers, and we're going to work through this passage together. So it's starting at Matthew 8, verse 23. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and he and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Jesus restores two demon-possessed men. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gardeners, two demon-possessed men coming from the tubes, tombs, met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distant from the large herd of pigs were feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us to the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. It's Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This is fellow is blaspheming, blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want to know that Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said, to the paralyzed men, get up in your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and to their praise, they praised God who had given such authority to a man. This is the word of the Lord. For them and for my arrival. <laughs> well done, guys. Nathaniel, how old are you? 
What year are you in at school? Wow, year two. I can remember being in year three. Maybe it was year four. Well, I'm going to say year three. And we used to, in those days, receive a school magazine. This is in New South Wales. I don't know if you guys received that up here. You've got a monthly school magazine by the Department of Education. It had stories in it of all different sorts. And the teacher would get you as a class to read around. So you'd all be following in the same magazine on the same page and somebody would read and then the person next to them would take on the next sentence or paragraph and you just read through the room. And I'm sitting next to my best friend, Edward Zack. And the word that we came to, he didn't know it <clears throat> and I didn't know it because I wasn't a very good reader, certainly not as good as Nathaniel and Annalise, about Scott's level, I would say. <laughs> Sorry, that's for your wife. Um, and we came to this word, F-A-T-I-G-U-E. F-A-T-I-G-U-E. Which is? To which I said to him, And Edward reads out, you know, he was feeling fatigued <laughs> and everybody burst out laughing. And I turned to him and I laughed too because I was so embarrassed. I had misled him. So when you stumble over a word like blaspheming, it brought all those memories back for me. You did incredibly well, young man. And may the Lord bless you. And Annalise, your reading is improved. It's even better than it was last time I heard you. Outstanding. Obviously, Joe, you're doing something right. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that we can read it and we can hear it. We thank you that we have it in a language that we can understand. And even with all of that, Lord, we still need your help to open our eyes, to uh, enlighten our minds, to open our hearts for us to respond appropriately. So I ask, Lord, tonight through these three miracle stories that out of one or two or maybe even all three, you will enlighten us, speak to us into our life situation of where we are now. Lord, whatever it is that you would like to say to, say to us tonight, I pray that you will help us in the process of listening. And I ask and pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. <clears throat> Great game, Wednesday night. N not... I am wearing a maroon shirt because that was my commitment back in 2003, 19 State of Origins ago, that I would wear a maroon shirt every time Queensland won. So I'm being true to my commitment. This is my fourth maroon shirt. I have five. I have two of these at home. I went and bought an extra copy just in case. You never know what happens. Tomorrow, before I jump into this thing tonight, <clears throat> tomorrow, our Mandarin brothers and sisters are starting a Mandarin Alpha course. goes for 12 weeks, I think, something like that. 10, 11, 12 weeks. Um, and the way that we... They, and they're in this space. They're in this auditorium. And they had a dry run last week. And so we can assist them, if you would, at the end of our service tonight, after you've had a chat and fellowship, just before you leave, is to grab a chair or a row of chairs and to push them over against and stack them up against both sides of the wall. That would be really helpful. And if they're single chairs, if we can leave those in a separate pile, because that's what they'll be using around their tables and things tomorrow. So pray for them, our Mandarin brothers and sisters, as they have, I think, something like 25 uh, guests coming, people who don't normally attend our church or people who don't go to church, coming along to hear the Alpha Course. If you're familiar with that, it's a very good, clear presentation of who Jesus is and what he taught and what he did for us, his death, his resurrection, 
and what results out of that, our salvation and our walk with him. Tonight, these three stories, let me give you this uh, lengthy introduction and then what I would like to do is simply go story by story and then pause maybe between each story and talk about some of the lessons that come out of it, not all of them. Um, but I invite you to meditate and to read this passage devotionally, reflecting on, God, what are you saying to me in this situation? <clears throat> Man's sin, earth's corruption and Satan's rule have brought all these sorts of results into our world. Sickness, pain, hardship, sorrow, war, injustice, falsehood, hunger, natural disasters, demonic activity and every other form of evil that you can think of, culminating, of course, in death. Man's sin, the corruption of the earth, God placing it under a curse because of man's sin and demonic activity, Satan's rule of this world. God's plan is to reverse that curse and he's going to do it in two stages through his son. Firstly, in the son coming the first time, to redeem humankind. Secondly, he's going to do it through his son when he's going to replace or restore the earth to a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus said his first coming came in humility. He goes to the cross, he dies, he is buried, he rises from the dead, ascends to heaven. And through that process, God has dealt with the sin problem. The penalty of sin has been paid for. Jesus in his humility. And the second stage, Jesus said his second coming will not come in humility, but he will come in blazing glory. He won't come to die, he will come to rule. He will establish his throne, wear a crown, and he'll create a new heavens and a new earth. Sin's presence will be removed. First coming, sin's penalty is paid for. The way is now open for us to be reconciled to God. Second time he comes, it's to restore the earth and to remove sin including removing sinners who don't believe, who have not repented, who have not accepted him. We live between these two events, these two comings of the Lord Jesus. And the miracles that we read about in the, in the Gospels, these miracles that we read tonight, are all a glimpse of the coming kingdom. They're an indication of what God is going to do. It's the king at work who brings peace into a storm situation, who rescues and heals from a demonic oppression situation and who brings both forgiveness, ultimately forgiveness, most importantly forgiveness, but also physical healing through the third story. Matthew has placed together for us in chapters 8 and 9 10 miracle stories and in groups of almost three. There are three, then there's a teaching session and Pastor Charlie would have done that last week. Tonight we're looking at three, session, uh, three more miracles and then following that will be um, another teaching session and then I think there are four miracles after that. What he's trying to do and establish is that Jesus is the, the Jewish Messiah. He is the promised one. So far in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew has demonstrated that genealogically. The Messiah has to be a son of David. Well, Matthew chapter 1 establishes that. He came through Abraham and he is um, of the, the line and tribe of David, uh, the line of David. He's the king. Prophetically, he had to be virgin-born, Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Morally, both at his baptism and his, and his temptation, he receives the Father's approval and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Instructively, he is the Messiah. He came into the world teaching God's truth, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And then 
chapters 8 and 9 and tonight in that overlap of chapters Jesus is the Messiah is established miraculously these 10 signs point to him if you read through the Isaiah you'll find that and some of the Psalms that in fact the Messiah would come and he would do exactly these things give sight to the blind he would calm the raging seas um, he would bring deliverance and freedom for the oppressed and the imprisoned and feed the hungry he did all of those things in fact the Lord Jesus says believe that I am who I say I am or at least believe me because of the things I do the miracles and even in tonight's reading Matthew chapter 9 verse 6 in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins then he goes on to perform that kneeling all of these miracles as I've said are a preview of the kingdom a foretaste a teaser a trailer if you will like at the movies well let's jump into the passage this passage ends up primarily asking the question who is this person who is this man so the storm the disciples and Jesus here yeah, we've got it then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him let me just pause on the word disciples this is going to be <clears throat> it'll take me a long time to get through just this first one but don't panic I'll speed up as we get to the other ones um, and if I don't, Rhonda will throw something at me. The word disciples, when you read that, do you think the 12? When I read it, that's what I tend to think of. But when you stop and look at all of the context and all the references to disciples in the Gospels, disciples fall into three categories. There are people who are called disciples who are, in fact, they're coming along because they're curious they want to find out more about Jesus, but they're not committed to him. They're fascinated with him. They haven't surrendered their life to him. And in John chapter 6, in fact, you'll have some of his disciples walking away from him. They'll say, no thanks, don't want anything to do with that. That's all too hard. So I've called those the curious disciples. Then there are a second category of those who are the convinced, like Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you are from God. We know that somehow you're connected with God and that you teach the truth. And they're convinced that he's at least a prophet or that he is from God, but they're not committed to him at this stage. They're still at that seeking stage. They're not born again. They're not in this personal relationship with God through Jesus. So they're not in the kingdom. They don't yet have eternal life. They're the convinced or the ones being convinced they're still seeking as well so there's the curious there are the convinced and then third category are those who have crossed the line they're the committed they're the ones who have left everything to follow him whether it's in secret like Joseph and Nicodemus initially or whether they're true and open it's permanent and it's public and they follow him they're committed to him now I suspect it's all three types of disciples who get into not just a boat in Matthew it's one boat but in the other gospels it's several boats that are involved in this all these different categories of people at different stages of belief get in the boat with Jesus and suddenly it says there was a furious storm um there's a Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is, is shaped in such a way that it's 600 feet below sea level but to the north of it there's this great mountain, Mount Hermon and the winds come around and come down the Jordan Valley and can come, sometimes come at a great force and we know what strong winds are like, we've experienced that in our own life 
Well, when it hits this water and it's plummeting down, it can hit suddenly and hit with ferocious force. In fact, the word that Matthew uses is the word seismic, seismos. From what we get our, you know, seismography, earthquakes. Now, he's not saying it was an earthquake. What he's saying is it's like a huge giant got hold of the Lake of Galilee and was shaking it. It was ferocious. All different sorts of terms can be used for it. A violent storm, a great storm came upon the lake. And it was so fierce, not only was the boat in the water, the water was starting to get in the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Which shows what about him? Shows his humanity. He's bone tired. He's exhausted. One of the other Gospels tells us he put his head on a pillow on the back of the boat and he's gone to sleep. In the midst of a storm, up and down, the water washing over him, the wind howling, and he's not disturbed at all. It shows us the Lord's humanity in him coming into our world. Well, let's move on. Um, the disciples went and woke him. So the storm didn't wake him, the disciples woke him. Even that's an interesting point, isn't it? That he's, he gets our attention. And they say to him, Lord, save us. We're perishing. We're going to drown. That's always a great prayer to pray, isn't it? Lord, save us. We're perishing. Anyway, they, they say that to him. And then he replies to them. He wakes up, obviously. And he says to them, he doesn't get up yet. He's still lying down. And he says to them, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Wind, waves, drowning, water's in the boat. Why? It's always interesting when Jesus asks the question, why? Matthew chapter 14, in coming chapters, when Peter gets out of the boat in another storm, in another situation, and he starts walking on the water, when he starts to sink, Jesus says to him, why did you doubt? Why? To Jesus, he expects us to have faith, like in who he is, in his greatness and in his abilities and in his power to control. Think about that in your own life. When you hit a crisis, when you hit a storm, when things are going wrong in your life, what does he look for in us? Trust him. He had absolute and amazing trust in his heavenly father. He gets into the boat, he goes to sleep, and he's just quite comfortable that God is in control. It's quite possible, as some commentators suggest, that because Jesus in a moment well, gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves, he rebukes them. Uh, that perhaps behind this occasion of this storm, there is some sort of demonic attack and that Jesus is rebuking this situation. I don't know. It's quite possible. But either way, the winds and the waves obey him. And there's a double miracle here. Um, I'm not a seaman and I'm not great at uh, you know, fishing and stuff like that. That doesn't float my boat. But I do understand this that when the waves are surging, there's a fantastic amount of energy involved in it. And when the wind gets a hold of it, you get their white peaks on it and everything else, when the wind stops blowing, the waves keep doing this. And they'll keep doing it for hours, maybe days. It takes a long time for the energy to dissipate. Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and there is this sudden calm. Suddenly, the waves lose, all that energy is gone and there's this, I imagine, this glassy sea, this lake, just perfectly still, which is why the next verse will tell us 
The men were amazed and they asked, what kind of a person is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They were afraid, it says in Mark. Not just afraid of the storm, they're now afraid of him. My goodness, if he has that sort of power and that sort of authority, you know, who is he? What is he capable of doing? So part of the application that I got out of this for me was Jesus expects us and looks for faith in us. Oh, ye of little faith, you little faith. Why are you fearful? It seems to me that faith doesn't have to be big, but it has to be real. And what fear does is it swamps it, it pushes faith out. That we listen to the fear, which is natural, we all do it. But God expects us to respond to him in faith, trust. Two questions. Um, Can God intervene in your life can God change the situation could God have saved little Abigail answer is obvious isn't it of course yes God can do anything God is amazing in his abilities and powers and what he can do he spoke the universe into existence he spoke it and it came to be so can God yes will God Mm, that's the question Well, sometimes God will give you a clue that, yes, he will. Well, in those times, you just need to have faith and trust that he has indicated that he will. So just be patient and just wait and trust him to get you through it. Sometimes, will he? And you get a sense, or you don't know. I don't know if he will. Well, when I don't know, will he? My response is still to be one of trusting him, to accept that he is in control and that Even if it's bad, he still loves me and he's still in control with what is going to happen. That's not something you can preach and say to other people, but it is a perspective that we need to have and that I think this passage highlights for us, that the Lord Jesus looks for us to exercise our faith in him in the midst of whatever circumstances going on for us. And our lives are in his hands. We cannot presume that he will always deliver us because obviously he doesn't and he won't otherwise we'd all be here in this fallen broken world forever so before i go on to the next paragraph let me just say a couple of these things this is my reflections upon it the disciples got into the boat with jesus it's always wise to follow him to go with him you're safer with him but when you are with him when he is in your life when you have accepted him, when you're part of that committed group of disciples, while he is with you, you are not free from trials. The storms still come. They were in the boat with Jesus and the storm came. came. And maybe, sometimes, it's because he is in your life that the storms will come. That the evil one and that unbelievers will oppose you because of him. But Jesus in the boat doesn't guarantee we won't go through hard, difficult times. But I'd rather be with him in the boat than out of the boat without him. That's a choice. I noticed that the Lord Jesus wasn't flustered by the winds or the waves or the situation. He just slept on. And even when they came and woke him, he didn't get up straight away. Why are you fearful? My Heavenly Father's got this. He's in control. He's got a plan and purpose for my life. This is not going to be the end of it. But much fear, little faith saves us. Much fear, we perish.
and certainly good for all of us, as I said before, Lord, save us, we perish. Um, faith is a good thing. Even a little bit of faith is a good thing. It's okay. But fearful, that overwhelms our faith. And so it's quite typical for us as we follow Jesus, we can oscillate between those, can't we? Um, but Jesus is trying to encourage us. Trust, faith. I love that story and I've told you on numerous occasions, Daniel chapter 3. You know the three guys story, um, with the three guys in Daniel and they're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach and into bed we go. Isn't that how you say his name? They've got a great statement. They refuse to bow and Nebuchadnezzar does a flip out and uh, he comes to them and challenges them. And they reply, Daniel 3, 17 and 18. They say, the God who put you in place is the God who rules over all and he is sovereign and he can deliver us from your fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, we will not bow to you. This resolution, God can deliver me, I'm trusting him and if he doesn't, that's okay because my life is in his hands. It's that stability and calmness that that sort of faith or resolution can bring to you is what's very helpful, very important. So great storm followed by great calm and in between, little faith. A little faith. And certainly the responses of the different people in each of the stories is worth taking note of. This same Jesus, this same Christ who still the storm on the Sea of Galilee is the same one who has power in the supernatural realm. Jesus came into this world to undo the works of the devil. This is a story about demonic possession and deliverance. Jesus resisted Satan in the wilderness and the temptations. Jesus overcomes Satan through these deliverance miracles. Jesus, in fact, came into the world to destroy the works of the devil and eventually one time, one day, soon, in the future... Jesus will remove Satan forever. In the new heaven and new earth, no Satan, no demons, no evil. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, the storm has calmed down. They've taken that little short, whatever it is, 10 kilometer, 15 kilometer trip across the top of the Sea of Galilee. Two demon possessed men. It's translated in most English Bibles as demon possessed. I don't like that translation, but anyway, I'll talk about it in a minute. Two demon-possessed men uh, came out of the tombs to meet him. They came running to him. They were so violent, no one could pass that way. Everybody avoided the area. They had a known reputation. Matthew tells us it was two. It could be a different occasion in the other Gospels or where there was only one and it could be, I'm not sure, some want to put it together, some want to separate it. Let's just focus on what Matthew tells us. It's in the area, the region of the Gadareans. That's like... That's not a city or a place, it's a, a region like the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast or something like that. It's a region with lots of other little villages and cities within it. And within this region there is certainly a cemetery and in that cemetery there are these two demonised people. Um, let me say this by way of introduction. We live in a natural world. We're very familiar with that. Our five senses and everything else helps us live and cope and enjoy this world. But there is also another world, a supernatural world, which permeates this world, which we can't see. But occasionally we get a manifestation of it. 
And the scriptures certainly talk to us a lot about it. There are angels and there are demons. You can't see them, you can't hear them, usually. Um, but they're there. The evil ones, the demons, the bad evil spirits, they hate you. They intend and want to destroy you. In fact, Jesus says that the devil uh, came to steal, kill and destroy. And Lucifer or Satan or the devil or the dragon or whatever you want, he thinks he's invincible. He thinks he's going to win. And he hates God with a vengeance and he hates God's purposes and God's people. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you are still part of his kingdom and he will attempt to neutralize you or to destroy you. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're a committed disciple, then he will seek to compromise you so that you have your life will be a bad example and when it weakens its impact upon others and for the gospel. In this passage, we discover that... Well, let me explain this. I, don't, I, I prefer the word demonized to the word demon-possessed. I think there are like... Simplifying this, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail... Um, a person can be demon-oppressed, you can be attacked on the outside. They can seek to have an influence in your life. That's oppression. Sometimes if we give in to it, Ephesians chapter 4, we'll talk about a demon can have a foothold in your life, an attachment, some area of weakness or consistent sin in your life. That can have a demonic cause behind it, as indicated certainly by some of the miracles. And then there is another level, which is what this is referring to, demon possession, which is where it's the demon is controlling you. So I, I think it's much healthier theologically to speak about being demonized. You can be influenced by, attacked by a demon, uh, an evil spirit on the outside. If you're a believer, a follower in the Lord Jesus, I don't believe a demon can possess you, control you, because the Holy Spirit is within you. But you can be a believer and a demon can be attached to you. You can have a foothold, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and God can use demons to send buffeting like he did with the Apostle Paul, a demon to torment or to discipline him, to keep him humble. There are lots of things going on in our spirit world around us. And this passage teaches us that the Lord Jesus has authority even over that world as well. These men run up to the Lord Jesus and they say to him, what do you want with us, Son of God? What are you doing here? Jesus crossed the lake. He's now gone to the area of the Gadarenes, a Gentile area, I assume. And then they say, they've got an awareness. Have you come here to torture us, to torment us before the appointed time? They know there's an appointed time. They know there's a day of judgment. Are you here ahead of schedule? You're going to do something to us? And then they say, um, oh, really? Who can read that? I don't know if I can. I'll have a go. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs were feeding. A large herd. The demons begged Jesus. They pleaded. They asked the question. They had a request. If you drive us out, maybe it should be translated, since you're about to drive us out, could you send us into the herd of pigs? Why do they want to go into the herd of pigs? I don't know. Except... There's something terrible going to happen and they are destructive beings. They're motivated by harm. So he said to them, go. One word. 
So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd of pigs said, you're not going in me. And they rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and they all died in the water. Did the pigs commit suicide because they didn't want the demons in them? No. Or did the pigs die because the demons were in them? And the demons were indicating and Jesus allowed it to indicate, show to people, this is what these guys do. They're bent on your destruction. People who were looking after the pigs, they were herds people, they would have been contracted out. Those tending the pigs ran off, they went into the town and they reported all of this. They gave a blow-by-blow account of what happened, including, not first, not primarily, but including the two demon-possessed or demonised men. The response to that was, the whole town came out to Jesus. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave. not opposed to him just not interested in him we don't want to follow you we don't know why you came we're not interested in why you came we just want you to leave because with you being here there's obviously a lot of destruction to property and so on and we don't want to be any part of that just not interested different people different responses there isn't a point in time of judgment the demons have some sort of awareness of things um of spiritual things they certainly believe in god and tremble james tells us they know that jesus is the son of god he's divine they know this is a future day of judgment and they even believe in the power of prayer if you like because they ask jesus since you're going to send us out can you do that they need his permission to do that it's worth noting yeah there is an appointed day of judgment um What can we say about all of that? Well, we live, in a super, we live in a natural world and a supernatural world and Jesus has authority over both. There are some things that happen in our world that have a supernatural spiritual cause and we need to be more alert, more aware uh, and the scriptures will seek to give us an insight into that. And so we need to put on the armour of God, we need to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus because the evil one is way smarter than all of us put together he's been doing this for millennia he's an expert i think on like emotional intelligence he can read you i don't believe he can read your mind but i think he can read you he knows your strength he knows your weaknesses and he knows timing he knows when to have a go at you to come back at you so you have a formidable enemy pastor charlie referred this morning to 1 peter 5 where Uh, It talks about the devil is like a roaring lion roaming around looking for someone to devour. He's looking for the weak link in order to bring harm. The reality is this. If we're on the narrow way, then the devil is over there. This is just an illustration. The devil is over there and he's on a chain. And he can't touch me. He can't touch me. As long as I stay on the path... But if I wander over to the edge, then I get him within reach of his paws to hurt me. My choice to depart from the narrow way, to give in to some temptation, exposes me to some sort of spiritual response. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Time's going. Here is a remarkable story that Matthew tells us and the other Gospels talk about this. Uh, But Matthew prunes it down because of his space, I suspect. Jesus stepped into the boat, please leave. He stepped into the boat. 
and he crossed back over to his own town. What's his own town? He was raised in Nazareth, but this is now Capernaum on the northeast, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. The other Gospels tell us he was in a house, he was teaching, the house was completely full. They bring to him a man on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, the faith of those who were carrying him, he said to the man, take heart, my son. He must have looked a little bit apprehensive or worried about something. And Jesus says, it's okay. Something good's about to happen. Take heart. This is good. And then Jesus surprisingly says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Why did they bring a paralyzed man to Jesus? What were they wanting, do you think, to heal him? so that he could walk that's what they were after but the Lord Jesus addressed the most important issue the biggest issue the issue of sin let me just move on to the story at this some of the teachers uh, scribes of the law they said to themselves they didn't say it out loud they thought it said it in their heart this fellow is blaspheming and they're almost correct because they go on to say, uh, did I leave a verse in? They go on to say, no one can forgive sins except God alone. That's correct. They're true. No one can forgive sins except God alone. So if Jesus can forgive sins, that must mean he is... Hmm. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier? to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise get up and walk well the reality is they're both easy to say what Jesus obviously means is which one is easy uh, to authenticate the visible one or the invisible one and Jesus says but I want you to know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin so he said to the paralyzed man get up take up your mat and walk amazingly the man got up and went home when the crowd saw that, they were blown away, filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. What does all of that mean for us? Well, the Lord Jesus addressed this issue of the man's sin because it's the most important issue. The Jewish people had a presupposition that if I am sick, then that's because I have sinned. My sin leads to an, a, a judgment, a consequence of sickness or something bad happening in my life. Read the book of Job. And they were riddled with that perspective on how things happened. And so this man is paralysed because obviously he's done something wrong or his parents have and this is the judgment for him. Therefore, I don't have to help him. Because if I help him, then I'm interfering with what God is trying to do in his life. That's how they reason and excuse themselves. But the Lord Jesus, knowing that that's obviously a false worldview, comes to them and he says, uh, the most important thing is dealing with sin. Your sins are forgiven you. Whether there was a connection between the physical, the paralysis and uh, his sin is not addressed in the passage. There could have been. There certainly are in other contexts, in other passages, and I would guess, I would surmise in here that there's not a connection here because if his sin is forgiven, then his paralysis would have been removed. Sometimes in the scriptures, there is a connection. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there is a demonic cause. Sometimes it's just a natural thing that happens. But every time something 
difficult happens in your life, you get sick or hurt or something like that is happening, you should ask the question, Lord, why is this happening to me? Have I done something that I shouldn't have done? Are you trying to get my attention? That's certainly what C.S. Lewis teaches us, isn't it? God whispers to us in our conscience, this is right, that's wrong, don't do that, do this. God speaks to us in life circumstances and God shouts at us or to us in our pain. He's trying to get our attention. It's his mechanism to rouse a deaf world, C.S. Lewis says. So the Lord Jesus does, uh, addresses this issue of sin. The root problem of humanity is sin. There's a, is, I said, a, as I've said, a link between sin and suffering, even if it's just the general one. We live in this fallen, broken world, which is fallen and broken because of sin. Or it could be a discipline from God. What we tend to do, what people tend to do with sin is they ignore it. Or they blame it on others. Or they'll excuse it. Pretend it's not, doesn't matter. Everybody's doing it. Nothing wrong with it. But Jesus takes it very seriously. And he says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. That's the most important decision. And Jesus demonstrates his deity by simply saying that. He gets questioned for it and he says, well, which is easier to prove? The visible or the invisible? Well, that you may know. I'm going to show you something. And he says to the guy, stand up and walk, and the guy does. And that the reality of the visible demonstrates the reality of the invisible. The Lord Jesus does have authority to forgive sins. So putting these three stories together. Great storm, followed by great calm. What do we learn? Trust him in the middle of it, even with a little faith. Approach him, look to him, trust him. The two violent, demonized guys, the two demoniacs, that results in a deliverance and a rescue for them. Matthew doesn't tell us. If it's the same story, then Mark tells us that one of those guys, Jesus sends on a missionary journey through Gadara to tell everybody what the Lord has done for him. These violent demoniacs, there is a great cost. 2,000 pigs, gone. And the people's response? Stop meddling in our affairs. Leave us alone. And the final one. Here is this man who is paralysed, lame, can't walk whom Jesus forgives his sin and who then goes on also to heal. It's an incredible story of miraculous healing. But the crowd is split between those judging him and between those who are praising him. So the passage Matthew is inviting us, what's our response? In the person of the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived in time and space. We've seen the king tonight heal and forgive. He is the one who has the authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, he'll say at the end of the gospel. This is a glimpse for us of what's coming. When he comes, this is what will happen. The world will be righted. Jesus wants us to know and believe that he is the promised Messiah. He's the king. Are you his disciple? Which group are you in? Curious? Convinced? Becoming convinced? still searching, or the committed. We all need sins to be forgiven. And then finally, wherever you are in the midst of your life, whatever's going on, pressure of uh, work, pressure of school, busyness, relationships breaking up, 
overwhelming financial pressures, whatever's going on for you in your life, in the midst of that storm, approach Jesus and ask him, Lord, save us, deliver me, um, and trust him to work his purposes out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one with all authority. You're the rightful King and you invite us to bow, to surrender to you. Help us to do that, Lord, tonight and to live that way moving forward. I pray that you would help those who are seeking, searching, those who are curious or even those who are still needing to be fully convinced lord continue to be patient with them continue to enlighten them and even use us to help in their spiritual journey for those of us lord who name your name who call you king call you lord and savior to the committed lord help us to be 100 percent committed no holding back no excuses sold out to serving and obeying you and I pray, Lord, that you would deliver us as well as use us for your purposes. We pray in your name. Amen.